Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! For whom we are the most famous. I guess we're famous as descendants of Abraham, but there are many of those. There are not so many known descendants of Joseph. And you are descendants of Joseph, probably every single person in this room. And there are millions like you that are also descendants of Joseph but don't know it. So the few that have been identified and have come into the kingdom uh, and have received their patriarchal blessings represent a, a somewhat small minority, but it's pretty exciting to find out about this person from whom we descended. So, let's see, you got up as far, uh, you finished all of chapter 5 today, didn't you? And 6? Did you do six? Okay. So maybe not officially. Oh, okay. Just do it officially. So I just want to say a few things about Joseph, and then uh, you ask any questions you have in mind. But uh, let's really get well acquainted with this individual. Uh, make his life part of ours, because he really was part of us. When they had the raid on the city of Shechem, oh, Joseph, uh, did he help his older brothers kill all those people and everything? What makes us think that he did? How old was he about that time? Yeah, they wouldn't have invited him to participate in that. So we assume that when they came down here from uh, Aaron, they came down here to the Jabok River, Jabok, they crossed over into the highlands. Remember, this is all mountains here on this side, 3,000 feet above sea level. And there were two great huge mountains come together. Um, there's a huge mountain, the mountain of blessings like this, and then it comes down into a valley, and a mountain not quite so high, which is the mountain of cursing, mountain, Mount Ebal. And the area where Jacob's well is located is a plot of ground out here, looking right into the valley. And in the floor of the valley here is old Samaria, which is called Nablus today. Nablus, and that's where um, Jordan, the Arab nation of Jordan, has its principal university. It's a university town. And so Jacob's Well is right out here, outside the valley. So you, as I lecture to people from Jacob's Well, um, we look up at the mountain of blessings and up at the mountain of cursings. We know that very near here, Joseph was buried. They brought his bones out. Moses brought them all the way out, turned them over to Joshua. And Joshua had both of his great armies meet here after they had conquered the uh, Palestinian area. And uh, he had some of his soldiers line up here and read the cursings, and other soldiers line up here and read the blessings. 
then he said, and now we will bury the body of our great uh, Joseph. And so he was buried right here uh, near Shechem, about halfway up between Sea of Galilee and the, and the Jordan. That's kind of exciting to be there, and we just sit under the trees and talk about all the things that happened at this well. This is where the woman came down, gave Jesus a drink, and he talked to her about her personal life and about the fact that she wasn't married but had been six times but wasn't married to this latest fellow. <clears throat> she said, you really are a prophet. You are really a prophet. And then she went in and brought out the townspeople and he made a lot of converts among the Samaritans, which to the Jews was very unfortunate because Samaritans were half Gentile, half Israelite. And they were the remnants of the old ten tribes. And uh, many of them said they were of Joseph. And they maintained the tradition about a Joseph coming in the latter days just before this, the coming of the Messiah. That's the Samaritan traditions. They have, a, 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 uh, they have one of their religious institutions right up on top of this mountain with some of their ancient manuscripts for which they're very proud. And you have sort of a competitive spirit between the two peoples, much more tolerant today than it used to be. So when Joseph was taken by his father down to old Hebron and he saw his blind grandfather, whose name was Isaac, blind so far as we know for a period of about 63 years before his death. And he'd been expecting to die all along. Once you're blind, why, you think it's all over. But um, he had 60, had a full normal lifetime of blindness, actually, as far as we can tell. And so little Joseph grew up there and he spent the next 10 years there near Hebron. Now, uh, when Father Jacob had left, where was the homestead for Isaac? Where, where were they living? They weren't living at Hebron. Where were they living? Beersheba, down on the desert. And you see, you come down off the mountains. The mountains end right here, the plateau. And as you come down past the Dead Sea, into the Dead Sea, you come right down into the Negev, or the desert area here. And uh, so Beersheba, if you just put it down not far from the point of the... Dead Sea, well, you're pretty close. Uh, in any event, that's where Jacob fled from when he ran up to Haran. When he came back, his mother apparently is dead, and his father is living at Hebron. We think if his mother was still alive, we'd have some reference to her, and since there is no reference, we assume she's passed on. And she's buried, uh, I think it specifically says, in Machpelah. So uh, we assume that by this time she's gone. So little Joseph grew up there, and he knew his, uh, uh, his grandfather Isaac, and, and everything went pretty well until he got up uh, in his teens. And uh, one time he was out with Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher, who are the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. And uh, they did something that was Belial. They, they played the role of the sons of Belial. They did some very bad, naughty things, whatever it was. Didn't tell us what it was. But Joseph thought it was below their dignity. And uh, so he comes back and tells his father. And his father interpreted this as an element of loyalty. And uh, uh, he sort of had the vision and the standard. There's standards in this family. And they're letting down the standards, whatever they were. Uh, so uh, you, you can see Father Jacob, he loves this boy because it's the son of Rachel, number one. And number two, he's showing signs of leadership and great loyalty to principle. And so his father makes him this coat of beautiful colors. Was that an asset or a liability? Boy, was it a liability. 
and Jacob just did not have the capacity to uh, <clears throat> do what my grandfather said was the most difficult thing in living the uh, having the plural families he said to to have them all feel that they have uh, an equal right to your attention to your finances to your love he said that is the number one task uh, in the patriarchal order of marriage and father jacob had many wonderful qualities but this was one that somehow he wasn't trained to develop quite so he doesn't mind at all letting everybody know this is the boy this is this number son number 11 he's really number one so he gets that coat and right on top of that at what age did he begin to have visions 17 now these ages are worth remembering uh, because we don't have many ages given in the scriptures and where they are specifically given we try to use them as um, sort of little rocks of Gibraltar to which we can attach a number of other facts and he has these two dreams the first one involved uh, what strangely enough sheep oh sheaves yeah sheaves uh, of what uh, sheaves of what I mean what were they made of sheaves of oats barley wheat what did they call wheat in ancient times corn anything that was a kernel was a corn uh, did they have corn that we have in America where did corn come from it's it's uh, original with America and uh, if there ever was corn in Asia we don't know of it it seems to have been developed here and it's it has uh, 50 main varieties when when we go down to Machu Picchu in uh, Peru I always ask the um, uh, the people to service the, the corn that is as big as your uh, fingernail you eat it with a fork it's that big variety and you just pull it off of the cob and it's sweet as it can be but it's big around your fingernail the largest kernels of corn I've ever seen and I've never seen it at except at Machu Picchu but I try to make a special point of the fact that they'll serve that corn uh, when we come and uh, show them how big it can be and they have red corn they have popcorn they have yellow corn blue corn all kinds of corn that's real corn that's the big kernel corn but when the Bible says corn it means kernel of wheat now wheat is a cross between three weeds and on this campus we have one of the world's expert on the DNA for grains and uh, brother Stutz has uh, succeeded in taking three of the weeds of Asia and crossing them to produce wheat wheat is not a natural grain and uh, he's also the one that took rye finest strain of rye put it in 10 feet square feet down here closed it off so nothing else could get to it and produced all kinds of different uh, species of rye one species uh, had two prongs instead of one another one had a great big old tail on it uh, so many uh, uh, places for kernels that it could only fill up about a third of them and he grabbed hold of that and he's cultivating that if he can work that one up where he can get that whole bushy tail full of seeds it's going to be like this new rye wheat where you can get 150 bushels to an acre and the seed uh, wheat costs you $30 a bushel. We're going to try some of it next spring if we can uh, save up enough of our pennies and afford a little seed wheat. Try out this brand new wheat that may, may be the answer to the world's starving peoples. And it's people like Brother Stutz, you see, that are coming up with this. Now, here's what the DNA will do. Here's what we we're finding out about uh, the genes in uh, uh, animals and plants. 
if you radically change the environment or cross them over, etc., this this little DNA as, um, uh, has the capacity to try a variety of possibilities. It's kind of like uh, uh, we call it uh, micromutation. It, it's, it's as though you had a hill, and uh, the environment has changed, so it needs it needs to change. You know, find DNA going down this way and this way. It'll have all kinds of different strains but only the one that fits the environment survives. And that will be the strongest for that environment. So, for example, you'll get the sparrows came in from England, um, what was it, about a, 1848, something like that. They got them. Some went south and developed nice, lovely plumage, but they had a lot of brown ones and white ones and spotted ones, but the ones with the nice plumage, they survived down there, down south. Going up north, they, they're, they're getting a lighter plumage, and they're the ones that'll tend to survive. You get some animals uh, that'll get up north and have a real traumatic change, and that DNA will run off in every direction trying to accommodate. You get some little animals that are white in the summer and brown in the winter. Do they last long? No, they, they're killed right off, right now. You get some that are brown all year round. Do they last long? Now we lose them too. Then you get some that uh, will be brown in the summer and white in the winter. What happens there? They survive. Those are the ones that come through. That DNA just runs all over the place trying to accommodate, and we call these micromutations. And what we are thinking is that actually in the DNA we have manifestation of intelligence responding to stresses. And uh, now that we know there's intelligence in matter and that these things aren't mechanical, um, it's just like Dr. Um, oh, who wrote Man the Unknown, uh, Morrison. It's just like he said on a cell. You ought to watch cells when you break a bone. You ought to see how they handle themselves. They get together in colonies. He said they anticipate things that haven't happened yet. Um, uh, they'll they'll actually actually go through a metamorphosis, and that which has been um, uh, one type of structure will completely change its structure to accommodate to the new stress. He said, they're intelligent. There's no doubt about it. There's intelligence in cellular life. And of course, that was just fanatical, radical. Uh, oh, you just can't have that. But he did. He said, that's what they're doing. And they meet together just like people. And um, then Alexis Carroll said the same thing in his book, Man the Unknown. And all the time, Joseph Smith taught it to Brigham Young. And Heber C. Kimball had it in his writings and so forth. So we're beginning to understand a lot of these things that formally... Uh, under the principle of a mechanistic type of nature that we, we couldn't accommodate, couldn't understand. My question is, then, you're... No, that's our No, you're the master intelligence. Those cells are all operating according to a pattern the Lord gave them. And they made kidneys, and you had nothing to do with that. And they made lungs, and they stopped at the right time. And they organized it just so and formed a sack. So you didn't have anything to do with that. That's following a completely different uh, order of control. You, you'll, you'll inherit all of that, but it'll be, you're just the superintelligence. They're all operating according to a principle that God gave them. It's built right into them. that They know exactly what to do. Every cell knows how to make a human being. Isn't that great? I'll tell you, when we get into the laboratory of the family of the gods, you, you think we have exciting times now? You wait till we get in those labs. Uh, you know what they've done? They've done everything that you can do. They've taken noses, for example. There's nothing that you can do with a nose that they didn't do in the laboratory 
of the gods. They had such a great time. They even put it in different places just to see how it would be. They made it long and short. They cut it off completely. That didn't look very good. So forth. They got it twisted. They got it turned up in a, in a trunk, put muscles in it, sort of wrap around. They've done everything you can do with a nose. And what they've done with an ear, all the way from practically having nothing out here uh, to having great big floppy ones, and uh, some pointed up and some pointed out and, uh, and uh, just put back here just a hole in the head like a whale. But they have these lovely pink shell-shaped uh, 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 fixtures that pretty girls have. That was what they figured out in the laboratory was the best. Then for us men, we got them, you know, a reasonable facsimile there. But anyway, <laughs> if you are in science and you keep the principles of the gospel in mind, you can get pretty excited about contemplating what this wonderful family of superintelligences have done to whom we belong. We belong to that family of superintelligences. They've really had a great time. Okay, now where was I? Oh yeah, we had some dreams here. Joseph had some dreams when he was 17. Uh, was that where I was? <clears throat> in any event, uh, wheat, that's what got me off. Uh, wheat and corn. Okay, you know all, all that I know about wheat and corn now. Um, the fact that wheat is, a, is a, what shall we say, a, a, an unnatural product of three different weeds crossing, I think is exciting. And if you, if you want to hear an exciting lecture on this subject, uh, listen to Brother Stutz and some of these, these brethren that are becoming internationally famous for their contributions in these fields. Now, first he saw the wheat, the sheaves of wheat, and they all bowed down to his sheaf. All of the, the brothers, there were enough sheaves to represent all the brothers, weren't they? They all bowed down to his sheaf. Now, as I suggested to you in a book, I've seen boys do this before. Uh, they're just beginning to feel their strength, and they are somebody. And they don't mean to boost, they just tell you what they're doing. Uh, I mean, they're with it, there's no doubt about it. They got destiny. And um, they're popular at school, or some things are coming. And in their, they want to share that with you. And they sound like they're boasting. And I think this is what happened to this 17-year-old teenager. He just wanted to tell him I had a very interesting dream and all the sheaves bowed down. That's kind of interesting that they'd bowed down to my sheaf. Yeah, it's not only interesting, it's disgusting, they said. <laughs> now, the next thing, the next dream, it's a little more complicated. What does it involve? Now what are we talking about? Sun, moon, and stars. And what do they bow down to? Joseph himself, no doubt about it. Did the brothers react favorably to this? And in addition to that, what, what did Jacob say? You mean your mother and I also bowed down to you? Don't you know the patriarchal order, my son? <laughs> well, as Jacob thought about it, did he sort of kind of put it back in his mind as maybe having more merit than he had thought? The Bible would suggest that, wouldn't it? He, he thought on that just a little. All right. Now we have the incident of Joseph nearly get mur getting murdered. I want to be sure you got the sequence of events right. The brothers all leave, take all the flocks of Jacob from down here in the south and go up to this rather rich area in this valley of Shechem, um, and Nablus of today, which belonged to whom? Who did it belong to? It belonged to Jacob and his family. Ten years have passed since the massacre. He hopes that they've forgotten or forgiven. And so back they go. And uh, they're gone quite a while, no word from them. Uh, all of the boys went except whom? Joseph and, and Benjamin. 
two of, uh, the two sons of Rachel. So the father says to young Joseph, you put on your pretty coat and pretty boy go up and see big bad brothers. Well, <laughs> that's the way they would have interpreted it. And he was a, uh, a pretty boy. He really was. As a matter of fact, some of the, um, the Arabian writers' most beautiful poetry is about the beauty of Joseph. Uh, some of the Mohammedan poetry is just magnificent on the beauty of Joseph as a human being, as an individual. So he gets up to Shechem, and he's wandering around, looking all over the fields, ran into a man and says, well, what are you looking for? He said, I'm, I'm looking for my brothers and the flocks. Oh, they went far further on up, better fields and everything. They went to Dotham, seven miles. It's about seven miles north, Dotham. It's one of the old capitals of ancient Israel, or would become one of the capitals of ancient Israel, Dothan. And so he went up there and he saw the flocks. So here he is running, waving, it's Joseph, I'm coming. This boy did not lack self-confidence. <clears throat> so they saw him coming, no doubt about it, there's that coat. And um, so they, they decide they're just not going to put up with this anymore. And so they say, what we ought to do is, is just kill him. What we ought to do is just kill him. And we ought to throw him in a pit, just bury him up. Nobody ever find him. And we just tell Dad that, um, yeah, I ran into lions or something. Were there lots of lions through this area? The Arabs have, um, now I've forgotten the exact number, but it's, uh, I think it's about 45 words that relate to the lion. They used to really be a plague on this territory in here, and they would attack human beings as well as the flocks. And so even in the days of Nephi, you see, just to tie him up and bind him on the desert, Laman and Lemuel knew he'd be killed before morning. So these predatory beasts, they were vicious. And so they knew they'd maybe get away with that. Uh, then um, who was it came to his defense of all people? Reuben, the excommunicated incestuous individual. And he said, let's not kill him, let's just throw him in the pit. So the boy comes up, yes. And that comes over further in the Bible when Father Jacob is giving a blessing to all of his sons. And he says to Ephraim and Manasseh, you must replace these two, they've been cut off. That's how we know about him. I think it was all done to reinstate himself. The Bible would even suggest that. And uh, <clears throat> so they, 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 they jump on him. Here he is, you know, Joseph comes up eager. Hi, fellas. <laughs> they caught him, throw him down, rip off. The, hey, what's going on here? They bundle him up and so forth. And boom, down in the well he goes. But it was a dry well. That was nice. <laughs> and um, so he apparently cannot get out. And they probably covered it up anyway. And it was pretty strenuous. So they all went back like a bunch of sheep herders to have lunch, you know. Got him in the hole now. That was job well done. Pick up the coat, boys. Bring a coat. And the job's done. So they're eating there, and it was, took them a long time to eat. And they cook a little mutton there and get everything under control. And all of a sudden, here comes a caravan from Gilead. Now these people are in trouble with shock. Here's Gilead, right here. And you cross right there to the fords and you come across into Jezreel. Now here are the mountains up here, the mountains down here, and right in between there's Jezreel Valley, and Mount Carmel is over here, and Megiddo is the pass between Carmel and these other mountains. You can see way back there, you probably can. But anyway, here's the ford from Gilead 
or Transjordan, it's called generally down here, but Gilead is up here. They cross the river and come down the mountain caravan trail to get down onto the desert. Or they can go on over to the coast, but there were some swamps along here, so frequently they'd stay in the highlands and trade as they went along. Now, who are these people? They are Ishmaelites. They are just about, uh, uh, let's see... Uh, they'll be second or third cousins they're that close to these boys now as they see them going these are caravans that go to Egypt all the time who was it said hey fellers let's sell him who thought of that yeah Judah he says uh, don't kill him let's sell him and uh, just a real good free enterpriser and uh, so they did they all agree that that'd be a good idea and uh, they, that's fine and who got to the um, dry well first what was he going to do and get him out and what was he going to do with him get him back to his father so this is what would suggest that he was trying to rehabilitate himself alright now let me just give you the um, uh, little something here to <coughs> work on here's Abraham and he had Ishmael and Isaac and Midian who by whom did he have Midian yeah what was her name how about Keturah that's a nice name all right six sons Midian was one of them so you got Midianites over here and you got Ishmaelites here and you got Isaac okay here's Jacob the next generation here's uh, and over here is Esau moving in with the Ishmaelites, another son of Isaac, of course, actually. And then you have uh, uh, Jacob's son down here, uh, Joseph, etc., the 12 sons. And then they probably have another generation, probably had another generation here. <coughs> so, what have we got here? Um, here are brothers, first cousins, second cousins, aren't they? Aren't they second cousins? Have you got about the same over here? Second cousins. Now these are tribes, they're off by themselves, but they're very closely related. Now, who had found Joseph first? Yeah, his second cousins of Midian. And uh, they pulled him out and seen the Ishmaelites, their cousins coming, also second cousins, but traitors to Egypt, sold Joseph to him for how much? 20 pieces of silver. So the Ishmaelites get further down the trail and uh, then the twelve or the ten, ten brothers get to see Joseph. Where's Joseph by this time? Yeah, he's coming down the trail with them. Joseph is already in this group of Ishmaelites. So they, of course, uh, run to the well, find that Joseph is gone. The Ishmaelites pass on. They've got Joseph with them. They have no idea what's happened to Joseph. What does, who does Joseph think sold him? Yeah. And he'll accuse them of it later in Egypt. He said, you sold me to the Ishmaelites. And of course, they'll know nothing about it. Yeah. In fact, that's a general misconception we have in the church. That's why I tried to straighten it out here. Because he himself, you see, later says, you sold me. And see, uh, if, you, if you're going through the scriptures kind of superficially, you take that as your source of authority that his brothers had sold him. But if you go back to the real account of what happened, the brothers really didn't know what happened to him. They didn't know he was in Egypt. They'd sold him. Why, they'd have, they wouldn't have been so surprised to find him in Egypt. 
They said, no, where he disappeared to? And so the Bible says the Midianites find, found him and sold him to the Ishmaelites. So they had no idea what happened to him. To sell people? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Usually because of poverty, but people were kidnapped and sold all the time. Right? Do you know all your second cousins? The ones in Idaho? And I'm the same way. I just went over to register my car, and this sweet girl says, I'm your cousin. And she's second cousin. Just what she is. I said, who's your mother? And she says, Rita Skousen Johnson. Great. Cousin. Okay, that's the way it is. So it's, it's the same way. You get out on those deserts and uh, get people living quite a distance apart. It's, uh, they become estranged very rapidly. In fact, I'd say that it's characteristics of, of the middle um, of, of these people in the Middle East to live from mountain peak to mountain peak away from each other as though they were in different countries. That's one of the most fantastic things. I get people up at the... Um, uh, on top of the Mount of Olives where the Intercontinental Hotel is. That's the first place we stop. And it's usually dusk when we get there. And so the next morning, bright and early, I wake them up and I'll say, all right, now I want you to look at this terrain. You can't believe it. It'll drop off 1,500 feet or 1,000 feet or 500 feet. It goes way, way, way down. And it'll come up on the other side. And there's a mountain over there. Now you can have a, a village on top of that mountain over there and a village over on top of this mountain. And we very seldom have any communications, different dress, different dialect, different uh, mode of building homes. And uh, as the crow flies, you're probably only half a mile apart, maybe not even that much. But those little communities became so isolated. That's the great thing that you're impressed with when you get over there, the way they do that. All right, now here are the second cousins on both sides. So who found Joseph? And to whom did they sell him? Okay, that, that, that gets into the examinations quite often. I just want to be sure you had that. Okay, now, in the Book of Mormon, it says that when... See, we don't have this in the Bible, but in the Book of Mormon, it says that when this coat was dipped in blood, before they got it back to the Father, it had rotted. Now, the part that had rotted um, and decayed uh, was lost so that only a remnant of the coat remained. Uh, the deterioration that took place where the blood uh, of, the, of the animal was on it caused it to rot, the Book of Mormon says. And so that only a remnant remained, and that was symbolic of the fact that most of Israel would apostatize and be lost. This is what the Book of Mormon says. But that a remnant of Joseph would be preserved, like a remnant of his beautiful coat. So that's something that's not in the Bible. All right, uh, very fast now. Um, poor Father Jacob. He had participated in the deception of his father under the motivation of his mother when she pulled rank on him. Would you say the law of compensation w w had run full and overflowing with his sorrow in being deceived about his son Joseph? He said, I'll never get over this, this sorrow. I'll go to the grave mourning that wonderful boy. He was my hope. Now you're going to find out later on what happens to him when they tell him Joseph is alive. He has heart failure. Have to revive him, and he can't stand it. You know, it can't be true. That's great. This really happened to real human beings too. That's what makes it great, exciting. All right. Um, now Father Isaac died. How old was Isaac when he died? 180. How old was Isaac's father Abraham when he died? 
175. Those are two good dates to remember. Abraham died five years younger than his son Isaac, 175, 180. Now, I said just a word about the Hyksos or Shepherd Kings because uh, very few people in the church have a, a grip on this particular thing. They, can't, uh, they don't have a reason for accounting why Joseph was so well received in Egypt. And it so happens that all the rulers down there are of his own race, that is, at least they're Semitic. They are not the original Egyptians. They have been chased out some time before, not very long before, as a matter of fact. And um, the historians, Manetho, the Egyptian historian, and the Greeks and others that tell the story, tell how these desert tribes, Arabs, really, uh, at least desert tribes with whom the Arabs subsequently mixed, came in, stormed the great uh, city of um, Memphis, <coughs> located here. What's the real, what's the modern English name for Memphis? Cairo. Um, what would it be, uh, what other name uh, does Memphis mean that's familiar to you? Nephi. It was the city of Nephi. Memphis is just um, a change of it. It's, uh, it's Noph. Memphis, Nephi. Isn't that interesting? Nephi is a, uh, an Egyptian name, as Sam is. Sam's the same as Shem. It's not an abbreviation for Samuel. All right, now, these Hyksos had come down, had been very cool, subjugated the people. They were heathens. They were not, even though they were Semitic peoples, they were heathens. And uh, they had their own priest. And uh, the priest of the Pharaoh had his uh, headquarters out at the Cairo airport. Uh, at a place called Heliopolis or on, and as soon as we get people off the plane, we so that before we leave, so they'll not miss it, I, I point out to the place, see right along there? That's old on. That's where Plato came to, be, to study. That's where Salon came. That's where Pythagoras learned all of his logarithms, etc. I guess that was Pythagoras. Anyway, this is where he studied. And um, uh, that's kind of exciting. Nothing there now except a few palm trees, but that was the old place of On, or Heliopolis, and that's where a beautiful young heathen girl is being reared up, who's Semitic, and she's going to become your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. She's your ancestress, a Seneth. Now, she's a Hyksos. Okay. Now, these people stayed there, lasted there, until just sometime after Joseph died. And then the original Egyptians came storming up from about 400 miles south, uh, the upper kingdom, and they took over the country again so that a pharaoh rose who knew not Joseph. Boy, he really didn't know Joseph. Uh, they hated Hyksos and Semitic peoples, so they enslaved them, and that's when Moses was born. So it all begins to add up in its historical frame of reference. Um, now Joseph was sold to whom? Potiphar. Now can you remember what his name meant? He was captain of the guard, but the word Potiphar meant, this is really a title rather than a name, and he's the chief of the executioners or the butchers. Chief of the butchers when the Pharaoh says, and I don't like him. It was Potiphar that says, yes sir. I'm we dispatched him to the spirit world. That's the way things were in those days. And um, so that's not too good a, a person to have by you. But um, that's all right for Joseph. Joseph had a wonderful sense of service. 
I've tried to imbue this in my own sons and daughters. I'm not sure I succeeded, but I've tried to say to them, wherever you work for a person, uh, try to see everything through their eyes. What would they like to have done? And sometimes you'll even make a, a misjudgment, do something they may not want done, but try to anticipate them. Have a real spirit of service, and you will succeed like Joseph succeeded. He had a marvelous sense of service, and he saw everything through his master's eyes, so to speak. So it's not long before he's running first the house. He started out as a houseboy. Pretty soon he's running the house. Next thing Potiphar says, look, take the fields too. So he's running the fields and pouring things into the coffers, uh, supervising things, running the operation. And finally uh, Potiphar says, don't waste time on inventories. Just tell me what I've got. You're, you're honest. You're a great steward, Joseph. I trust you. And so this went on very nicely for about how many years? Try for 11. He, he was taken down there and sold at 17. For 11 years he served Potiphar. But he was good looking. And uh, uh, he had undoubtedly attracted a lot of the girls in the area, but uh, that didn't matter. The most dangerous woman in Egypt, unless it would be a wife of the Pharaoh himself, falls in love with him, terribly infatuated him, even to the point of losing her sense of dignity and everything else. And she um, uh, tried to seduce him over and over again and was unable to do so. Uh, I mean, he, he just simply said, look, uh, your husband's trusted me with everything he possesses except you. And uh, he just tried to reason with her. But on this one occasion, he came and do a little office work there, and no one else was around the house. Servants were gone and everything. And uh, she laid on hands. And um, it's called woman handling, I guess. You've heard man handling? It was woman handling. I mean, anyway, anyway uh, um, uh, it got to the point where she said, now is the time. And she grabbed hold of him, and uh, uh, he was smart. Uh, there was some cloth there and he just let the cloth slip off into her hands and he uh, fled. Was it Brother Rector that talked about this at last conference? There is a time to go. Depart. And this was one of those times. No time to, to reason and so forth. But uh, uh, th this was the last straw as far as she was concerned. And so uh, having been repulsed, her hatred knew no bounds. So if she couldn't have him and could not seduce him, and could not uh, take advantage of this great beauty and virtue which he represented, then she would destroy him. No one else would have him. So she first told the servants, then she told her husband, could he have killed Joseph? Would he have been excused for it? Uh, undoubtedly. So you can see, actually, on a man-to-man -man basis, he's a, a man of the world, and he understands, and and he has a beautiful wife, so he says, no, I won't kill him, but I certainly got to get him out of the way. So he throws him into this dungeon, which was a roundhouse, and it was the dungeon of royal prisoners, and Joseph is put in the underground. Apparently, above ground was administrative offices, down below are the prisoners, and he's down below. Before long, he's doing what? He's in charge of the whole operation. <laughs> what a man. And... Uh, he was specifically put in charge and serving what two people? The butler and the baker. Now, I just want you to know of this rather significant archaeological development. 
In Central America not so long ago, they, they found the image of an individual with a boat on his head, uh, a man wearing a boat. And it's a, uh, a stone carving, so you can't, um, it's not too clear well, just exactly what kind of a boat it is, but it's long and tapered and kind of looks like a Napoleonic hat, but everybody agrees it's a boat. And along comes, I think it's Dr. Gardner at uh, Brandeis University, and um, he commented on, it, uh, commented on it and so forth, uh, and pointed out to people that this had great significance. Then came Joseph Yosef Ganat, uh, assistant to the Prime Minister of Israel, to University of Utah, to get his doctorate degree. And when he saw that, he said, everybody is mistaken about this boat. That is no boat. That is a bird. That's a bird. And everybody took another look at it. Sure enough, it's a bird. You see the neck, uh, back, and the head, and he said, those aren't sails, those are wings. And you look, sure enough, it's a bird. It's got wings. Joseph Gannat says, you know what that's a symbol of? Any archaeologist in Israel knows that is Joseph. And in ancient times, they always portrayed Joseph with a bird on his head, reminiscent of his interpretation of the dream of the baker who had uh, birds eat up all the food in the top basket. And the bird on the head of an individual is hieroglyphs for Joseph. And so Dr. Gannat said, I can tell you this, there were the descendants of Joseph in America before Columbus. That I'll tell you. <laughs> now, that was a breakthrough because no archaeologist in America knew that. They did know it over there, they did not know it here. Okay.